0: following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. A couple of weeks ago, we were looking at how do we deal uh, with discouragement. We were looking at Elijah, and he's coming off of First Kings 18 and the Mount Carmel mountain top experience. And he's so excited, and he's on fire, uh, and he's just going, and nothing can distract him until the beginning of chapter 19. Where Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And he becomes so discouraged that nothing has really changed. And he's so discouraged that he goes out and he just wants to die. He's not suicidal. He's just to a point, a low point of going, why? Why am I continuing to be faithful? Why am I continuing to serve? Why am I continuing to do this? When it doesn't seem that anything is changing and maybe you relate to him. Why am, I remaining to, why am I continuing to be faithful in my marriage when it doesn't seem to be affecting it? Why am I being faithful in my home when my children don't seem to be getting it? Why am I faithful in my work and my occupation and it doesn't seem to be having any impact at all? Nothing seems to be changing. And we saw God come to his suffering servant and minister to him. And Christ coming near to him and leading him to the mountain and saying, I'm going to encounter you there. And I'm going to minister to you there. And I promise you. Basically i will put it into the modern English for you. God said to Elijah. I got it. I got it Elijah. You can trust me and trust my plans. Uh, I'll take care of you. And I'll take care of my church. And you can trust me. And so we were seeing how he comes to discouraged servants. And some of you need to hear that. Because you're discouraged. And you may have a view of. Uh, of God who looks on you and he's disappointed with you. Can I, can I tell you something? Your God in heaven is not disappointed with you. He's not. I wrestle with disappointment in my life. I, I hate when people are disappointed in me and sometimes I think that sometimes God is sitting up there and he's going, oh, Bill, again, really? And he just has out this eternal cosmic sigh. And how all of us can interpret that sigh? And he's saying, no, Bill. And he's saying to you, I'm near to you when you're discouraged. And I'm going to minister to you and I'm going to turn you back to who I am. And then last week, we looked at a different D. We looked at discouragement the week before. Last week, we were looking at how do you deal with doubt? And we were talking and looking in Matthew chapter 14 of Peter And they've just come off again, another mountaintop, if you would, experience. They've seen the 5,000 fed. They've seen God do miraculous things. Jesus tells them, now, fellas, uh, you go get in the boat. You head on across the the, uh, sea of Galilee, and you head over there, and I'll join up with you later. And a storm comes, and they're in the midst of the storm, and they're tossing and being buffeted by the wind. And all of a sudden, in the fourth watch of the night, they see this figure coming towards them. And they're afraid, as normal people would be afraid. Not often you see someone walking on water. Anybody seen that this week? No, it would have been, we were on the beach yesterday, and it was one of those cool you know, phenomenons of the water temperature and the sky are different, and so there's lots of fog, and there's all of this. If a person came walking out of the water, I would have been freaked out. And so were the people there. The men were freaked out. They said, "Oh," And Peter said, hey, Jesus, if it's really you, bid me come. Jesus said, Peter, come on. And Peter got out of the boat, which is awesome enough. And he started walking on the water. And we don't know how far he went, but he went close enough to where he was right there with Jesus. And then it says that he looked around and he noticed the wind. It's Not like he didn't notice it before, but he re-noticed it. And it caused him to doubt. He doubted maybe in himself, but more importantly, he doubted in Christ. For Christ to be able to sustain him, and he began to sink and he cried out, Jesus, save me. And it says that Jesus reached out his hand and saved him. And that great picture, it wasn't like Jesus had to perform a miracle and send his arm 100 yards and go and pull him up. He was right there. And so how do we wrestle with our doubts? How do we deal with our doubts uh, in that way? And we, we were challenging and being challenged to, to doubt our own doubts. Why, why did doubt become the pinnacle of our belief system? But maybe bring those and to investigate them more. And to come back and to really ask what it is that we believe and why we believe it. And God will constantly remind us of this. I'm the Lord who quiets storms. I'm the Lord who takes care of you. I am your God and I'll take care of your doubts. But be honest with them and wrestle with them. And this week we're going to finish up our series. uh, This little mini-series on these. We've looked at discouragement, doubt. And now we're going to look at despair, kind of going even deeper into how does God deal with us when we are in profound despair. And I'm differentiating a little bit between discouragement and despair uh, because uh, Elijah was discouraged. Who we're going to look at today in the story of Ruth and Naomi is Naomi most especially was despairing. She had fully lost everything. She was at the bottom rung. She had no hope. She had nothing. And even in the midst of that, she is working and trying and trying to to manufacture and to do and to manipulate and to do all of these things. And at the very end of it, God comes through in a way that is absolutely shocking and miraculous. And I hope we'll encourage you that God can take your despair and not just get you through it but redeem it and turn it into something miraculous and glorious in your life. So if you have your Bibles, flip over with me uh, to Ruth, and we're going to look at chapter 1. Ruth, chapter 1. And I'm going to go ahead and let you know something this morning. Don't look for an outline. I'm going to kind of just walk through this story with us. Because this is what it is, it's a historic story uh, of Ruth and Naomi's journey from Israel to Moab, from Moab back to Israel, and then within Israel what was happening. And why I want to tell it in story form is that's how this was originally told. This was a verbal, this was an oral tradition that was passed along uh, and it was then written down. And so we're going to listen and talk through and walk through. And I hope that you'll be able to relate and to see a lot of the characters in here. Of Benlach and of of Ruth and of Naomi and of Boaz and of all the others. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. This is God's very word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons... And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion, and they were, Ephra- uh, they were from Bethlehem. And see, uh, you don't have to know exactly how to pronounce all of that, but um, they were from Bethlehem in Judah, so they were Israelites. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived about ten years, and both Mahlon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then pick up in chapter 19. I mean, excuse me, verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And what's happened in the, in the interim is this. Get a picture of what's going on. It was in the days of the judges, and you move right through that. But what you really should do is go, oh, in the days of the judges. Well, what, was the day, what were the days of the judges like? Well, the days of the judges, and we studied this uh, last year, we looked at and saw that the days of the judges could be be known by this one mantra, And there was no king in Israel, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. It was a dark time within the history of Israel. There were constant marauders who were coming in and pillaging uh, the people of Israel. They had no king to defend them. And so the Lord would raise up judges, uh, Gideon and Samson and others, who would be raised up and would deliver God's people. And he would bring peace to God's people. And then it said, and the people followed after other gods. And the Lord disciplined them. And so there was this constant cycle that was going on. And since there was famine in the land of Israel. Most likely the famine was associated with another time of God's discipline for his people. They were in that season uh, of moving away from God. And God was disciplining them to try to bring them to the end of themselves. To try to bring them to a place where they would finally turn back to God. And to say, "All right, Lord, we're going to follow you. And Elimelech took his wife, and they moved to Moab, where they sojourned. Basically, he went there knowing that God can't provide for us in Israel, therefore I'm going to go to Moab. And you may be saying, well, Bill, that seems reasonable. It's just a man who was industrious. He was trying to provide for his family. But he went to Moab. Hmm, Moab. Oh, Moab would make me think of the story of Lot. And of Lot and how uh, Lot's two daughters, on successive nights, got him drunk. And then they went and had incestuous relationships with Lot, their father. And the children of Lot and his daughters inhabited the land of Moab. And they were pagan and they hated the Lord. They were a land of people who had nothing to do with Israel. And Israel was told to have nothing to do with Moab. They... They worshipped Shemash, uh, the pagan god who would demand child sacrifice. A god who demanded sexual fertility uh, rites at the temple. Who forced young girls into prostitution. It, it was a horrid religion. And yet, Elimelech took his wife and his two sons. And they headed to Moab. Because maybe God would be in Moab and would provide for us there. That's the setting. That's taking place. And so they're there in Moab. And guess what happens? Naomi loses her husband. Naomi loses her husband. He dies. Some of you who have lost a spouse. Know that particular pain. You're already hurting. You've had to leave your entire family And all of your relations and everything that you knew and had. You've left in Bethlehem. And you've now traveled with your husband. You've followed him dutifully. You've followed him here to Moab. And you've got your boys with you. And you're there. And now your husband dies. And so now, oh my. Naomi is a woman which was bad enough in the ancient Near East for she had no rights on her own. She was covered only by her husband and by his provision and now she is fully uncovered. She has have two sons but now she is a foreigner. She is an illegal alien in another land. And she's a widow with two boys. And she does what Any desperate woman would do. I need to provide for my family. My family needs to provide for me. So she, an Israelite, who was bound to Israelite and Hebrew law, which said, do not intermarry with the pagan nations around us. Do not intermarry. Give your sons to them or your daughters to them. She took her sons and her sons then married two Moabitess women. You see something going on here? And so there's this mess happening And there's a certain silent desperation uh, of Naomi, who is doing everything she possibly can. And it says that they stayed in the land for ten years. Do you notice what didn't happen in that ten years between her sons and her daughters-in-law? No children were born. They were barren. And especially no sons were born, which was so key and important in the ancient Near East. And so you have this family which is continuing to decline, which is continuing to be away from all of their support systems. I don't know what it was like uh, in Moab, but what I can imagine is that they weren't considered first-class citizens. They would be considered that Israelite widow and her sons. And now they've intermarried. And they were now most likely ostracized From everyone. The Moabites probably weren't very happy. That their daughters married into Israel. Because Israel hated them. And Israelites. Wouldn't have been happy. Because now the sons of Israel had married pagans. And so you've got this mess. And you think in your mind. It can't get any worse. Guess what happens. Both her sons die. And now she's left as a widow, grieving the loss of her husband. My mom has been grieving the loss of my dad for 22 years. You still miss him, even after all of those years. And so she's only 10 years removed, and she's grieving the loss of her husband. And now, I've never lost a child. Some of you have, and it's a particularly devastating loss. And now she is mourning the loss of her two sons. This woman is in absolute, deep, and utter despair. She has no hope. And so what we didn't read there was an interchange between Naomi and her daughters in law And she basically said, I have nothing to offer you. I have no more sons. I I have nothing else. Go. I'm going to leave. You go. And the one daughter, uh, Orpah, she left. She wept, but it was reasonable for her to leave. She said, I'm going to stay in Moab and I'm going to be remarried most likely and I'm going to have a family and I'm going to do that. But Ruth, Ruth said those great words, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And so she stayed with Naomi and they headed back to Bethlehem. So do you see the story? You see how much fuller the picture of this gets as you begin to really read it as a true life story and not just a couple of characters in the Bible. And then we pick up in verse 19. It says, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So here they come back. And again, They hadn't been Facebooking over the last decade or so. Uh, They hadn't been sending selfies of, hey, here we are in Moab. Great day in Moab. They are coming back. And the people of Bethlehem probably didn't expect to ever see them again. And they came back, and it says that they were stirred That word stirred has somewhat of a negative connotation. Uh, They were moved. They were upset. It, It was sort of overwhelming. And why? Can you imagine what the physical stature of Naomi must have been by that time of life? Do you think she was walking straight up? Coming in? All looking sharp and put together? She was walking back in. Desperate and disheveled. And destroyed. So much so that when the women and the people of Bethlehem saw her, they looked and said, Is this Naomi? She said, I'm no longer Naomi. I'm no longer the strong, beautiful woman that left this place so many years ago. Now I'm just bitter. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. That's my identity. That's who I am now. I am nothing more than bitterness and loss. So please do not remind me of my former days. For the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And then, just as an aside, it doesn't say it, but I can only imagine. Guess who she's walking with? Ruth. Where did Ruth come from? Moab. Moab. So the people are coming in and going, here comes Naomi. Where's her husband? Where's Elimelech? Oh, he's not with her. Where are those two boys that she went out with? Where are their wives and their children? Where are they? Where is all of their, uh, their stuff? Nothing. Who's this pagan woman with her? Who's this Moabitess woman who we hate? Who we're not supposed to have anything to do with? Who's this woman? Oh, you can tell why they were stirred. You think there's gossip on the island. (laughs) Can you imagine what was happening in Bethlehem? Well, you know, I'm not one to spread rumors and all, but I heard uh, that Naomi, now Mara, whatever she wants to be called, she came back and did you hear that her daughter-in-law is a malabitess? But she didn't, I mean, I'm not spreading a false report. Oh, it was just moving along. And so here they are in total deep despair in the time of the judges when there was chaos already in Israel. But it seems that now the drought has ended for it's the season of the barley harvest. And so they were there in the season of the barley harvest and picking up in chapter two and I'm just going to tell you the story of chapter two. Chapter two basically says this, Naomi, I'll just call her Naomi, said, Ruth, we've got to eat. We've got to eat. And one thing I remember about my Hebrew heritage is that there are laws in place for the impoverished and the poor, for the widow and for the orphan. And those laws were put in place by this incredibly generous and gracious God that we have who would say that you can now go into the fields behind the men who are working in the fields and especially if you would go to our relatives. But if you would go to these fields, you can glean. You can take a little bit that's left and dropped there on the ground and you can pick that up and that can be our sustenance so again the picture in chapter 2 is Ruth goes out and she's out there in the field and she's picking up the pieces of barley and she's gathering them for her mother-in-law and for herself that that's all that they have well she bumps into this man and this man's name is Boaz Boaz And Boaz owns the fields that she's gleaning in. And Boaz looks at his workers and he says, Who's this woman that's following you around? Who's this woman uh, that's gleaning uh, in our fields? And the workers say, "Uh, That's Ruth. She is the daughter-in-law of Naomi, who was the wife of Elimelech, who was one of our clan, who was one of our family. And she's come back. And Boaz Knew the story. I read that again. I was like, how did he know the story? Oh, I know how he knew the story. Same way you guys know all the stories that go on in your neighborhoods. You talk about them and they're passed on. And people are interested. And so he knew the story. And so he looked at his workers. And he said, interestingly enough, in chapter 2, Don't touch her. Don't touch her. Protect her. And while you're going along in the way. Do something for me. Drop more grain down on the ground. Even some of the bundles of the sheaves that you're collecting. What a picture. Of this generosity. And godliness and graciousness of this man Boaz. And he was protecting this woman who was in the field. Why do you think he had to say don't touch her and don't let any harm happen to her? What, what day and age were we in? Day and age of the judges. When the people did what was right in their own eyes. And it's amazing what the human heart can do and say and justify. Because it would be very easy for an ungodly man. A worker in the field. Uh, Maybe an indentured servant who had nothing of his own to look out and to see this woman and to say, I'm going to take advantage of this woman. Why should she have this when I have to work so hard for it? I'm going to take advantage of her. She's nothing. She's a pagan woman. She's nothing in our society. She's nothing in our standing. And Boaz said, do not touch her. She's off limits, boys. And beyond just don't touch her, protect her. And provide for her. You see what's going on in the picture of what's happening. And so she comes back that night uh, to Ruth. And what a great evening that must have been. She came back and she had eaten because Boaz provided a meal for her there. And have you ever been so starved that food was finally laid in front of you? How did you approach the food? Finger up, very dainty. And you just inhaled it. I get this picture of Ruth as Boaz provided the food and she just ate it she was just eating it have you ever seen somebody who's so hungry you've maybe watched in a movie and they're eating they're like mm, okay yeah thank you but there was that sense of desperation and then she came back to Ruth and Ruth said how did you get all this tell me about your day she goes, I met this man Boaz and Naomi went I know Boaz And she calls him a particular name uh, in chapter 2. Somewhere in there. Um, There. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, verse 20, uh, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Ah, she brings in this word now. She brings in this word gaal, a word that's a kinsman redeemer. This man isn't just any man. He's one of our redeemers in our clan. He's one who can help us get out of this situation in which we're in. He can take our desperation. He can take our destitution. He can take our ultimate despair. And he can get us out of this. And the next day she dresses her up. And I'll explain all the redeemer stuff in a moment. She dresses up Ruth the next day. And, and or that evening, and she says, now go to him. And after he's had his meal and he's gone out and had a couple of drinks with the fellas, he's going to fall asleep, and I want you, Ruth, to go uh, uncover his feet and sleep there at the foot of his bed. That sounds odd. But what you need to understand is, Naomi, even in her desperation, Mara in her bitterness, she knew something about God. She knew that God could still redeem and make all things right. And so she sent her daughter-in-law. And some say she manipulated the system. Some say she was doing. I think there's a sense in which she was ultimately just desperate. And she did what she thought she needed to do. And she sent her daughter-in-law there. And it says that she slept at his feet. It doesn't indicate that they had sex. It just said that she slept at his feet. And he woke up in the morning and he looks down. And as any man, he's a single man it seems, would do. And you wake up and there's a beautiful woman at your feet. His first response was, whoa, what? Whoa, whoa, who are you? how, How did you get here? And she explained the situation. She said, I'm Ruth. And Naomi said that you're my redeemer. You're my kinsman redeemer. And she told me to come and to be here. And he fell back asleep and in the morning, it says before you could figure out who another person was, basically, uh, before it was dawn, she left so as not to bring any shame on him or any shame on her family because she didn't want him to, for people to talk. Hey, did you hear that Boaz was sleeping in the same grain pile as Naomi? I'm sure nothing happened. No one would believe that, but nothing happened, it seemed. And so she left. And Boaz, the righteous man and the Redeemer, understood the kinsman-redeemer law. And the kinsman-redeemer law was this. If there was someone, a male relative in your clan, he could come and marry you or marry your daughter and carry on the line for you. That he would perpetuate the name of, For you, That he would keep the generations going. He would come and redeem you and provide for you and take care of you. And do all of that. He would give you a lineage. Now for some of us in a society today which has diminished the the need and the role for children. That we like to have one and a half to two and a half. Somewhere in that range. Uh, But we don't want too many of them. This was a culture that said children are a blessing from the Lord. The more we have the more it shows God's blessing on us. Normally what we say uh, in our society is, you're nuts when people start moving past two and three children and going, wow. And so we have a friend who, they have 12 children, no twins, no adoptions. And people look at them like they're nuts, 12. She's been pregnant their entire married life. (laughs) 20-something to to two years old uh, are their children's ages. But his view is, Children are a blessing from the Lord. They're a lineage, a godly lineage that he gives us. And so there was this kinsman-redeemer picture. And then what happens in chapter 3 is he knew, though, this. He was a godly and a a caring man. And he said, there's one who is closer in order of redeemer than me. And so let me go speak to this man. And if this man will redeem uh, Ruth and take care of Naomi then he'll do it. But if not, then I'll do it. And it says that he goes to the elders who are at the gate. And the guy, it says he calls to this person and he says, friend, come and stop here. There's no word in the English to really translate what it says in the Hebrew there. But it really says this, hey, old so-and-so. Doesn't even give the guy a name because it's sort of highlighting the fact that he's a worthless man. He's not willing to step in and do his duty and his function. He's not willing to fully and completely follow what the Lord would have for him. It says, hey, old so-and-so, come over here. And he says, hey, there's this woman, Naomi, who's come back. She's a close relative. You're the redeemer in line. And it's your duty to redeem her and to then redeem her daughter-in-law by marrying her daughter-in-law and perpetuating the name, Elimelech's name and his line. And he says, oh, and by the way, there's a piece of property that's going to need to be redeemed as well. They're trying to sell it. It was probably indentured at that time. They're trying to sell it to get out of debt. And the guy goes, oh, cool, I get property. He goes, wait a second, you can redeem the property. But then if you redeem the property, you got to marry Ruth. You have to marry Ruth and have children with Ruth. And they actually, very interestingly enough, they're your children, but they will bear a name and they'll carry on his line. So it's such a sacrifice for the kinsman redeemer. It, it would be as, as if, and I don't want you to get confused in this, but the best way to describe it, Lisa has two sisters. And, and let's say that Leslie, her older sister, when they were younger and in childbearing years, had lost her husband Jim. And I was a part of that uh, family. I wasn't married to Lisa at the time, but I was somehow uh, uh, related to Jim. I would come in. I was Jim's brother. I would come in and I would marry Leslie. And I would have children with Leslie. But they would bear my dead brother's name. He, it would be his line that was continued. It was that sense of, boy, you talk about a big decision. And so old what's-his-face. Old so-and-so decided, no, I don't want to do that. And so Boaz came. And it says that he married Ruth. And he redeemed the land. And he redeemed Naomi. And she comes back in the end. And you pick up. And so, verse 13 of chapter 4. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went to her, into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter in law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to them. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David the king. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't it have been good enough just for God to take care of Naomi and Ruth? and give her a husband, and redeem this woman now in her elderly years, and say, I'm going to take care of you in your elderly years. But here's what I want you to hear about this God that we serve, and this God that we love. And those of you who are visitors, who are stepping in, maybe for the first time back into church and wondering about this God, He is an incredibly extravagant God. You ever been around somebody who's like, you want to see something, watch this. That's kind of what God's doing here. He's saying, you want to see how extravagantly I love? I'm going to take care of Ruth, and I'm going to let her marry Boaz, and he's going to take her, and Naomi, you are going to gain your name back, and that would be probably good enough. But then guess what happened? She had a kid. And no offense, ladies, but it wasn't a girl. It was a man. It was a man-child. And he was going to carry on the lineage of Boaz and Elimelech and the clan. Oh, and that would be good enough, wouldn't it? I mean, you'd hit your knees and go, praise be to God. I give you my life. Everything is mine. I will follow you all my days. And then he goes, oh, but it's even better than that. This guy, Obed, he is going to have a son, and his son is going to be Jesse. And you can imagine the oral tradition as it came down. Are you kidding me? You mean Jesse? The, The Jesse? Yeah, that Jesse who had a really young son who was a shepherd. And that little shepherd boy killed Goliath. And that little shepherd boy became king in Israel. And he loved the Lord, his God, in those days. How amazing. So what I want you to take away from this story today is this. No matter where you are in your walk, in your journey. Maybe you're off trying to figure it out on your own in Moab. And you're trying to do your own thing. And God has you in a foreign, a far off country. And maybe it's by your own addictions. Maybe it's by your own willfulness. Maybe it's by your lack of trust in God and his provision. Maybe it's by whatever it is that you're doing. You found yourself in a really bad place. I want you to hear this. God can and will lead you home. And he's not going to bring you back just to make you feel terrible about yourself. Of saying, see, I told you not to do that. Naomi, I told you, don't go to Moab. Bad things happen when you disobey me. See? No. God said, I'll take care of you. And I'll restore your fortunes. I'll restore your life. And then just because I can... Your name? Oh, how wild is this? Go read the genealogy of Jesus. Guess whose name you find in there? And Boaz, and Ruth, and Jesse, Obed, and Jesse, and David. So through this foreign woman and her mother-in-law, who went to do their own thing, or at least Naomi did, God redeemed it. I don't want you to lose hope today. I don't know where you are in that journey. Maybe you're the person and all your friends are looking at you and going, have you heard about Bob? Have you heard about Sue? Have you heard about this? And they're looking at you and you're the reason for the gossip. Your life is messed up. Know that there's one who cares deeply about you and will give you a name and restore you. And will bless you. But he wants you to come home. He wants you to come back. To him. And to follow him. And to come and admit to him. I need a redeemer. Because the beauty of Jesus Christ is this. He is our ultimate true kinsman redeemer. Who redeems us from the pit. Who redeems us from the curse. Who comes into covenant relationship with us. Chesed with us. And he then says this. You have a name because of my name. You have life because of my life. And I'll make your life valuable. Because I've determined to make it valuable. And of worth. Because I love you. Is that good news today for some of you? Man, I hope it helps you read the Old Testament more. There are incredible stories in the Old Testament. If Hollywood wants to do a story, let them do the story of Ruth. Wouldn't that be awesome? Filled with pictures of redemption. Filled with pictures of loss and of sadness and the real life that you're experiencing. And some of you are experiencing it right now. And God in the end saying, I'll redeem you. Let's pray.